the one and only Cliff Richard and the Hi, this is David Ghosty Wills, and welcome to episode 25 of the We Say Yeah podcast, a monthly unofficial Cliff Richard and the Shadows fan podcast where we review and discuss every single EP and LP in chronological order. And I don't think it'll come as much of a surprise that last month's episode with guest Bruce Welch, as we went through track by track, the Shadows' greatest hits album of 1963, was our most downloaded episode by a country mile. So much so that we're still getting those reactions. As such, we're going to save reading out those comments and questions for next month's show. But before we get to our feature on 1963's Cliff's hit album with our guest Fred Velez, I want to introduce you to actor and playwright Paul Westwood, who's bringing a play to the Edinburgh Fringe Festival in August that listeners to this podcast may have an interest in. Paul, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me, David. It's, a, it's an honor to be on here. Well, it's our honor to have you. The play we're going to be talking about is Cliff-related. Um, why don't you tell us your backstory on how you became a fan of Cliff Richard? Yes. Oh, my goodness. I mean, I can start at the beginning. Should I start at the beginning <laughs> with brevity? Sure, go right ahead. Okay. So I was um, very lucky to be brought up by uh, two parents who were big music fans. Their range of music wasn't huge because they were so passionate about the people they loved. And on my dad's side, it was John Denver, great singer. And um, on my mum's side, it was Cliff. So from the year dot, we were raised, my sister and I, Christina and myself, were raised listening to those two singers predominantly in the car and at home. Um, there were other singers, well, the Beatles came in and uh, a bit of Kate Bush and uh, a bit of Johnny Mathis, but they were the main two. And um, the difference between John Denver and Cliff for us was that we, we, I think my parents went to see John Denver, but we didn't. We did get taken to see Cliff, like from a very early age, like the age of five, six we were taken to his concerts at the NEC in Birmingham, which is still there. I forget the name of it now. It's been renamed a million times, but it was the place we'd go to. It was also the place where my mum, who was a member of the local fan club, would 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 camp out <laughs> in tents um, for about a week, two weeks, to make sure that they got the front row, uh, or at least the first two rows. Um, of the concerts back in the day, where it wasn't a you know an online bun fest to try and get seats. And um, they used to end up on local news. Midlands Today was the local news channel. And then we'd get back from school and their mum would be waving with a thermos and like right. uh, a cheap pasta dish or something. It was, it, was, it was bizarre, but it wasn't bizarre because it was very normal to us because that's what we'd grown up with. But, um, but it was her love of music and, and her love of him that I think instilled a uh, passion in performing and what a performer can bring to an audience. And so um, uh, I'm very lucky to have, to have sort of been able to follow my dreams and, and to become a performer myself, an actor and a writer. Mm. Um, and, I, and I always pinpoint that if I'm ever interviewed to, to Cliff and to the fact that we got to listen to this man and, and go and watch him be incredible and hold you know, thousands, tens of thousands of people sort of in the palm of his hand through his music and his and his talents. And uh, I can remember mum going to the event as well and us going down to the V-Day celebrations in 1995 down to London to watch him outside the palace. And I have amazing memories 
of of my childhood and a lot of them involve um cliff or going to the concerts going backstage we're sometimes lucky enough to go backstage um my sister is in one of his videos um wow if i if, if you want the quick anecdote about that yes um, of course which is a um, if, if you uh, the, there's a, a video for two hearts his song two hearts which i don't know if it's a massive um hit with everyone but but i i certainly love it and it, and it pops up a few times on our on cliff facebook groups as, as sort of fans choices Anyway, long story short, he announced to the crowd at the NEC in Birmingham one time that he was going to video the uh, music video for Two Hearts and it was going to be him singing it and, and us in the crowd. And I always remember he said, we're going to do it twice to make sure we've got it. And uh, there was sort of a, a, a mini gap in the middle of the two recordings. Anyway, my sister had drawn a picture of Cliff to give him a stage door around the back before his car drove off. And, and it had ended up crumpled under her feet in the car. So there was a big debate as to whether this this drawing could indeed be given to Cliff because it was it sort of become a bit of a, <laughs> a Picasso, um, right. and um, so um, anyway, in between in between the takes, suddenly uh, Mum was like, "Oh, where's Christina gone?" And suddenly the security guard at the front of the stage was lifting Christina up onto the stage to hand this drawing of Cliff to Cliff. Now Mum hadn't prompted that, but which stuns me because I, you know, as a mega fan, right. like, get down there, get down there, and give Cliff your picture. So. Um, <laughs> And we remember that and being like, oh, my goodness, you're so cheeky. And, you know, and he had a little chat with her. Oh, and he said, where have you come from? And she pointed back to mum and said, over there. <laughs> um, anyway, that ended up in the um, in the Two Hearts video. If you watch the Two Hearts video, sort of towards the end, where it's sort of the bridge of the song, there she is fleetingly being lifted up, I think in her Minnie Mouse T-shirt that mum had made for her um, onto the stage. So that was major brownie points major brownie point um, so that, that's that's a sort of potted history of, of uh, yeah my links to cliff and also um uh, go briefly uh, my mum sadly passed away um quite early and um in our sort of childhoods well when i was about uh how old was i wake up call i was 13 and my sister was 15 and it was um obviously very traumatic that it happened but the mm. cliff fan club that she was a member of in, in birmingham arranged for a, a dedicated bench to be put outside the NEC, which was so lovely because um, she was actually cremated. So, you know, her ashes were spread, but there's nowhere specifically, there was nowhere for us to go to, to sort of remember her apart from, you know, our thoughts and house. Um, and I don't know how this happened, but Cliff was driven up from Surrey and came to dedicate the bench to her when oh. they, when they unveiled the bench um, in sort of uh, November, December, I think it was December. It was very cold um, of that year. And I don't, I still don't know which member of the fan club organised it was Pat or Lynette or who, but um, I just thought that was so incredible. A, of them to do that, and B, of him to come up. Because, you know, his fans are legion and all his fans are trying to get in touch with him the whole time and tell him how much they love him and appreciate him, or, or I'm sure to do things in lovely ways, charitable charitable things. But um, I thought that was incredible of him to do that. Yeah, that's a remarkable story. And all of these stories, or at least the spirit of these stories, works its way into your new play, <laughs> which I know has a longer title. I'm referring to it as Cliff Club. I don't know if... There is a oh, stupidly okay. long title. And I'll tell you the reason for this, David. In the Edinburgh Fringe Guide, the shows are listed alphabetically. So we thought, hang on. 
hang on, we could be the C with Cliff Club, but we could be A if we called it. Here we go, deep breath. Uh, an audience with the <laughs> an audience with the Cliff Richard fan club, Sutton Coalfield, nineteen ninety five. Oh no, sorry, that's not even it. An audience with the ladies of the Cliff Richard fan club, Sutton Coalfield, nineteen ninety five. I'm shortening it even now, <laughs> but um, that was to get a double A in, and we thought if we get double A and an audience or an afternoon, we can get near the top. And of course, there are people who've chosen numbers as the titles to their show, so we're still <laughs> eighty five pages into the into the fringe guide. But um, but yeah, it's Cliff Club for sure. It's hashtag Cliff Club for sure. Basically, I mean, you've you've written plays, you've acted, so you were mm. inspired, obviously, by all of these experiences. To, I you know, I guess in a way, it's it's kind of a tribute to your mother, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It's a tribute to my mum. It's a tribute to Cliff. It's a tribute to those women who were just so amazing and so lovely all the time to us it's a tribute to their community the community that can come from being in a fan club because sometimes when you're a fan of someone in your room listen to the music or, or on, your, on your on your headphones you can think um not that you're the only fan but you know you, you can feel isolated in a way even though you've got that 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 relationship with the artist and the music so when you find other people when you realize you're not the only one it's such an amazing experience and, and you suddenly don't feel like that that sort of uh, outsider not that not that i would say cliff fans or any fan is an outsider but there, there is that side so the fact that these fan clubs existed and my mum would go to the meetings every sort of couple of weeks or every month. And that they'd, they wouldn't just go to Cliff concerts. They'd go, you know, for outings. They'd go to Westman Safari Park. They'd, they'd go on day trips together. It was a real community of women celebrating not only their love of Cliff, but also celebrating themselves, if that makes sense, mm -hmm. and, and sure. helping each other through things. And I just, I just thought that was an amazing facet of, of being a fan actually and and it was my friend Lucy Kerbel she went to my university she um has a company called Tonic Theatre it doesn't produce theatre but what it does is it, it, it is trying to get more women in theatre basically both both backstage and on stage and they do lots of amazing training around the country but I was having tea with her one day and she said because I told her about um when the fan club had basically a local radio station had come to tape the fan club meeting to, to have sort of um, a desert island discs. They'd gone around there and I taped that radio, um, Radio West Midlands going to see the fan club. And, and when I told Lucy about this, that I'd unearthed this tape and I hadn't listened to it for, you know, 15 years, she went, that would make an amazing idea for a play. I hope it gives people sort of an escape for 55 minutes, really, and time with these amazing women. Yeah, I was just curious, not to give too much away, but I was just curious how it is staged. The reason being, I'm thinking, okay, anybody going to the Fringe Festival knows what it's about, but on the off chance that someone sees an audience with, the and they might think that they're attending a lecture, um, yes, is, is, it, is it set up? I mean, is it... It's not a lecture. It's more interactive in a way, and I think I, I tick the interactive tab, but I think interactive theatre people think they're going to be gunged or, I don't know, um, be hustled down a, a alley <laughs> to have a monologue okay. shouted at them or something. It's not like that. Basically, the, the structure is is very open. The house lights will stay on probably. And and when the, the, the audience will line up outside to come in and when they come in, they won't just go to their seats silently and wait for the you know, lights, lights to go down. They're greeted immediately by the ladies of the fan club, the six characters in total. Uh, and mm -hmm. they're, they're, they're asked their name, they'll be given a little name badge. Um, because basically the, the format I've chosen is that they're going for a taster session of the fan club. So they're gonna be right. introduced to these six women 
uh, they're going to hear about, you know, why they're so obsessed with Cliff, what, who their favourites, what, what their favourite songs are, uh, experiences they've had with the fan club. They'll be asked questions, you know, there'll be an opportunity for the audience to ask questions back at the ladies. Um, of course, it's set in 1995, so there's no mobile phones or, or anything like that. So, um, right. you know, <laughs> the question, the answers might come back in a sort of period setting. Um, yeah, right. But um, <laughs> but, it, but it's basically, yeah, food's being prepared or not prepared. There's a bit of comedy chaos there. Um, one of the members is late because she's just doing her shift at the supermarket. And she's the most chaotic member, Pat. <laughs> um <laughs> And then there's, um, yeah, and most of the, uh, another reason why I wanted to write the play, I wanted to write a play for older actresses or other actresses of experience because they would say, you know, once you hit sort of 30 or 40, you know, the roles drop off if you're an actress. True, and, yeah. I, and I thought, why is that? That's, yeah, it's so ridiculous because, uh, you know, as, as we all get older, we, we learn more, we experience more, we're, we're, we're hopefully better human beings. And um, I thought, gosh, that's a massive chunk of life being ignored by writers and, and commissioners so so five of my actresses are, are 45 plus uh, the characters are right the way up to 75 years old and then one of the characters sarah is the daughter of, of pat so she's 17 and, and i wrote that for a graduate so we've hopefully got a graduate from um one of the drama schools in either edinburgh or glasgow who's going to take that role and that will be their first acting role um, oh. So they're straight into work, uh, and and also <laughs> how brilliant to be surrounded by five, you know, great actresses who they can learn from on that first job. True. Yeah. What are the dates again, and and the location for the festival? Yes. Yeah. So we 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 kick off rehearsals middle of this month, and then we've got a London preview on the twenty seventh or the twenty eighth of July. Uh, that's unconfirmed yet, uh, venue wise, but I'll I'll send that information to you. Um, then we've got a preview in Birmingham on the 30th, where the play's set at the Old Rep Theatre. So there's a, a, a preview at the Hysteria Festival, which is going on there. We've been asked to close that festival. That's a festival of theatre sort of pr- promoting and celebrating women in theatre. Um, that's a real honour. And then we go mm. straight up to Edinburgh. And then Edinburgh, Edinburgh runs from the, uh, I think it's the 4th of August to the 28th of August. So we, we do the whole month there with one day off in the middle. And um, we're also filming the show then. So if anyone wants to watch it as part of our sort of fundraising scheme, we thought, well, why don't we film a performance? And if people can't get to Edinburgh, Birmingham or London this year, because hopefully it's going to have a future life, um, what they'll get is um, if they can give a donation, they'll um, they'll get a, a, a video, to, uh, sort of a, a link to a, a video of the show. And it's going to be filmed from three camera angles. It's going to look amazing. You should feel like you're there. So where do they go in order to... To do that, they yeah. can... Well, our crowdfunder, uh, I mean, so brilliantly achieved its target the other day. Now, that link is still live, and, and we're still accepting donations for it. But um, if, they, if they just go to Google and type in Cliff Club crowdfunder so three separate words um cliff club crowdfunder um the first result up will be the crowdfunder page and if they look on there under the rewards scheme um they can see um yeah how to donate and, and how to get a, a copy of that and that would be sent out on the 15th of august um to everyone who's donated in that way am i wrong is cliff doing something cliff, cliff himself doing cliff, yes cliff is doing something at now i'm going to forget the name of the mini festival that's within the there are so many festivals at the, at the edinburgh festival it's hard to keep track of them but basically christopher biggins who's quite a big personality here in, in britain has organized this sort of interviewing famous people uh festival right. <laughs> and gloria hannaford who cliff has of course been interviewed by before is interviewing cliff I think it's on the. Tw- I need to. I need to check the dates. I know it's towards the end of the month, 
of August anyway. So he is going to be in town mm. when the play is on, Cliff, if you can hear us. Okay, so it, <laughs> so it lies within the realm of possibility. It, it lies within the realm of possibility. I mean, my favorite actress, Judy Dench, is also in town in the middle of August. So I will be doing my, my hardest to get offers of comps to, um, to said people. Because that would be very surreal. Uh, I'd be a mess. I'd be a complete mess if you were. I'd have to be controlled. Yeah, that, I found the dates. The 26th and the 27th of August, he's going to be there. Mm. And it's and it's him and Gloria Hannaford uh, at, a, at a festival called Prestonfield. So the fringe at Prestonfield. And then he's doing he's doing two dates. So there's two chances there, Cliff. There's two chances. Bring Gloria. We'll give you a we'll give you a drink. Yeah, there you go. Well, again, Paul, thanks so much for uh, coming on and talking about this. Sounds really really interesting. Yeah, it's it, it should be a fun hour, and I I hope people will relate to it. Also, I forgot to mention just briefly, we're doing a community tour after the Fringe, so we're taking it for free around Birmingham nursing homes and community centres to people who don't really get to access theatre because of cost or disability. And um, so, yeah, that's also why we're we're raising funds to to take it. So there's no charge to those venues, and we're gonna we're gonna do a week long tour around the hometown that it's set in. Then, so that's exciting. Wonderful. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, thanks so much for uh, coming on the show, and thank you, David, and thank you for the work you do with this podcast. I, I, I've loved it. I've loved it so much over the, over the past few months, and um, and I know other other listeners will as well. I'm sure you get. I'm sure you get communication saying that. But uh, but just thank you from us for doing it. I appreciate it. it. Always means something when I hear it from people. So I really appreciate it. And now I'm going to go watch the Two Hearts video and look yes. for your sister <laughs> and the and the crumpled <laughs> drawing. The crumpled drawing. <laughs> All right. Thanks so much, Paul. Take care. Thank you. Thank you, David. Sounds like a lot of fun, doesn't it? All right. Now on to our main guest, Monkeys author and expert Fred Velez, who's a more recent fan of Cliff's. And we're going to be discussing Cliff's hit album, released July 5th, 1963. It reached number two on the charts and stayed on the charts for 19 weeks. Now, because this is a compilation album, and we've already talked about these songs on earlier podcasts, we're not going to dwell too much on recording dates and chart positions. Instead, we're going to get Fred's fresh perspective on these old rock and roll classics. But first, I began by asking Fred about his long association with the Monkees and the Monkees fan community. The Monkees, I've been a fan since they came out in 66, 67. I've always loved the music. I've always loved the TV show. And even after the TV show was off the air and the Monkees were no longer an entity for a while, I was still listening to the music. I was collecting the solo records and just following them as a fan. And um, when they came back with Dolan's Jones, Boys and Hearts in 1976, I was pleased to find out that I wasn't the only one who was still a fan. There were still a lot of fans out there. And over the years, I was just involved in a lot of fan projects like conventions and book signings and various things like that and personal appearances. And I actually worked with Davy Jones uh, on one of his books. 
uh, Mutant Monkeys book, um, through all my experiences with them, I accumulated all these stories and people over the years, people who knew me and my connection with the monkeys said, Fred, why are you going to write your monkeys book? And I said, well, I don't know. I want to, but uh, I'm not, I'm not sure about it yet. And then uh, sadly, after Davy Jones passed away in 2012, I thought well, now is the time to write the book. So uh, my wife, Linda suggested, and not only should I put in together my stories about my involvement with the monkeys, but also collect stories from other fans because their stories are fascinating too. So that's what I did with my first book, A Little Bit Me, A Little Bit You, The Monkeys, from a fan's perspective. And that book, a lot of people enjoyed it. I actually gave copies to Mickey, Peter, and uh, Mike, and was and also gave uh, copies to Davy's daughters. And they all were pleased with it. So then the first time I was selling the book at the 2013 Davy Jones Memorial Monkeys Convention, a lot of people came up to me and said, Fred, we love your book, but, you know, why do you talk to me about my stories? I got stories, too. And people from, like, England and Japan and Brazil were telling me the same thing. You should have come to me with my for my stories. I thought, you're right. You know, so, so maybe I should write a second book. So the germ for the second book got into my head. And I was starting to work on it when I was struck down with a serious illness. And fortunately, you know, thank God I was able to pull through it. But in the, in the interim, I'm sadly, Peter Tork passed away. I wanted to get the book finished in time to give a copy to him, and sadly, it never happened. So I started earnestly on the book during uh, the, the, the year of COVID, 2020. I was able to get the book ready in time for the Christmas sales. And the second book incorporates fan stories from around the world. It's called A Little Bit Me, A Little Bit You, Two: The Monkeys from International Fan Perspective. And I was fortunate enough to be able to get copies to uh, Mickey and Mike during the uh, final 2021 Monkeys concert. Sadly, Mike passed away a few weeks later, so I don't know if he ever got a chance to look through my book, but I'm glad I was able to get it to him. But uh, I was very pleased with how the books came out, and I'm very happy that people like the books. I'm not sure if I'll do another Monkeys book, because I want to be known as the guy uh, that every time a monkey dies, he, he writes another book. So I don't want to do that. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I'm, I'm going to focus on, uh, if I do, if I do another book, I'm going to focus in a different direction, but I uh, never say never. There might be another monkey's book in me sometime in the future. Well, maybe you can combine your love of the monkeys with your love of the Beatles. I know you're a big Beatles fan. Why not do a book on Beatles and Monkeys connections. You know, you've got Brian Epstein bringing the Monkeys over to tour under the NEMS banner in the UK. Uh, obviously, the Monkeys and the Beatles met and hung out together. And, you know, there's possibilities well, that, there. That's not a bad idea. Um, uh, okay, have your people talk to my people and I'll have people's. Yeah. You know, it's a good. That's not a bad idea. I kind of like Yeah. <laughs> now, I don't know if there are any Monkeys. Cliff connections. I know Cliff recorded a, a bunch of Neil Diamond songs. I don't think he ever recorded any voice and heart numbers, but any monkeys, Cliff Richard or the shadows connections you can think of? Well, I did come across a picture. Uh, you may have seen it too, of Cliff with Mickey and Samantha Just and a very young Cat Stevens. And that was like in 1967. Uh, you could tell by Mickey's haircut at the time. And Samantha Just, if you know your monkey's history, was Mickey's first wife. She was a TV personality at the time for one of the shows. I think maybe Top of the Pops or one of those shows. But that's where he met her. She's referenced in the song, Randy Scouse Git. 
being known as Wonder Girl. That's her. The being known as Wonder Girl is speaking, I believe. It's not easy trying to tell her that I shortly have to leave. So Cliff is there wearing his glasses. As far as I know, that's the only picture I've come across of Cliff with any of the monkeys. Now, I would think that he might have run into Davy Jones at some point during his career. But uh, as uh, as far as I know, that's the only connection I found so far between Cliff and the monkeys. So I'll steal your joke from earlier when we talked off air about uh, the Cliff Notes version <laughs> of your <laughs> uh, interest in Cliff Richard. So how did you become a fan? I ask everybody who's on the show, how did you become a fan of Cliff and the Shadows? Well, um, I did read about Cliff in the, the Beatles' uh, Hunter Davis book. They were mentioned. And that sort of piqued my interest. And uh, I later heard Devil Woman, We Don't Talk Anymore. And suddenly with uh, Olivia Newton-John from the movie Xanadu. And Xanadu was the first record I bought that actually had Cliff Richard on it. And then I saw, oh, Cliff Richard, I know, I've heard that name. Then I heard Miss Unite, which I thought was amazing. It was a great song. And then when you put together your We Say Yeah podcast, that even intrigued me more. Once I got into your podcast, I started to examine more about Cliff and got more into his music and started looking up records to get, like uh, the CDs, like the greatest hits. That helped a bit. And I just started collecting some of the CDs, some of the BBC collections, the two that you suggested. Uh, the movies I was able to find on Video Beat and uh, the two movies, um, uh, Young Ones and uh, Summer Holiday. And then reading Cliff's autobiography, uh, A Dreamer, I got to know more about him. You know? And uh, I started you know, checking out some of the things like the Time musical. I was able to get a copy of the soundtrack, which has Julian Lennon in it and Freddie Mercury and Ashford and Simpson. And everybody was saying how good the I'm Nearly Famous album was. Uh, so I had to get a copy of that, especially the Rocket Records one, since uh, that was Elton John's record label. All those combinations got me into the Cliff Richard rabbit hole. So I don't know if I should thank you or punch you in the nose. Well, <laughs> well, I'll, I'll take that as a compliment. Um, you know, that, that rabbit hole, is, there's just so much there. I mean, there's all that music, 60 years of music. Oh, and I know. Books and... I'm not getting all the albums. I'm just getting uh, various ones. Uh, and a couple of them I actually got signed, like the Fabulous Rock and Roll uh, songbook and Cliff Richard at the movies. I got two of these from eBay sign. Oh, very cool. And my other, well, I just went briefly back for a second. My other connection, uh, well, I've heard of Cliff was through the young ones, the TV show. Right, of course. Because they, because they referenced Cliff almost in every episode. Oh, Cliff, sometimes it must be difficult not to feel as if you really are a Cliff when fascists keep trying to push you over it. Are they the lemmings or are you Cliff? Or are you, Cliff? <laughs> you know, for a new fan, you scooped me because you were the one that told me about this new book. Yes. Um, a Head Full of Music that Cliff's putting out uh, in October. Yeah, I, I was surprised, too. Um, what happened was I went to the Steve Hoffman uh, Music Board, which I'm sure you've been on, too. And they have a thread there about uh, Cliff Richard called Cliff Appreciation Thread. And someone mentioned the book, says, really? And I looked it up and I saw, wow, this looks great. And I sent you the link. So it looks like it's going to be a good book. Yeah. So let's talk about this month's album spotlight. It's Cliff's hit album, his first ever greatest hits album. There would be many 
after this one. But this is the uh, the first, the original, released in July of 1963. And it's funny, if you look at the cover of this album and you compare it to Elvis's Golden Records, I think there was some influence not only musically but in the design, in the packaging as well. Um, right. It makes sense because Cliff was positioned as England's answer to Elvis, although Cliff very quickly became his own man. Um Let's talk about these tracks. Let's go through them. There's a lot here, actually, and it'd be fun to get your perspective as someone who's really just hearing these songs uh, for the first time or fairly recently. So let's talk about Move It, recorded 1958, and this is Cliff's really big first single. Initially, Schoolboy Crush was going to be the A-side. Move It was the B-side, written by uh, Ian Sammy Samwell. Cooler Heads Prevailed. Move It became the record that Radio plugged, and it was the record that launched Cliff's career. I think it's a great rock song, and I see why uh, it was such a hit. It's it's got that groove to it. It's it it really cooks with the guitar and everything. Um, Hank Marvin wasn't in the group yet; it was still the Drifters, right? True. Yes. Right, but uh, it's a, it's such a great rock song, and. That alone would put Cliff in the in the rock and roll echelon or whatever, echelon, whatever, whatever you want to call it. You know what? Yeah, exactly. I wonder. Do you think Cliff and the Shadows belong in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? Definitely, definitely. I mean, he was the first major British rock artist to have had such an incredible impact as a frontman. I'm sure he he, he inspired people like uh, uh, Mick Jagger and uh, and Freddie Mercury. And um, you could hear a lot of the shadows and a lot of uh, George Harrison's guitar solos. And also some of the other artists like Jimmy Page, you could tell that they studied at the feet of Hank Marvin. And I'm very happy when I saw the Beatles Get Back documentary that they have a clip of the Beatles actually performing Move It uh, mm-hmm. during the sessions, at, you know, just, uh, just goofing around. That alone shows you how much of an impact Cliff had on British rock and roll. Yeah, I think if Cliff and the Shadows ever got into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, it would likely be in the influences category because they're not as well known in the U.S. and the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is an American thing. And uh, I know also that for a a Monkees fan, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is especially controversial, but we we won't (laughs) go there. Uh, Moving on to track two. And it's a song written by Lionel Bart, and it's Cliff and the Shadows' first number one, Living Doll. Got myself a crying, talking, sleeping, walking, living doll. Got to do my best to please her just cause she's a living doll. Got a roving eye, and that is why she satisfies my soul. Got the one and only.
the first time I heard Living Doll was in the complete Beatles documentary. It was when Jerry Marsden introduced it, talking about right. <laughs> rock and roll in England at the time. And he, he pointed out that Living Doll was the type of song they got. And he did the, uh, the cutesy country version. And then they played the version that's in the movie Serious Charge, which was a more rock and roll version. Uh, Living Doll, I thought was good. You know, it's it got a nice country twang. And it's funny that uh, it, the Young Ones, the TV show, used that as their charity record with Cliff. And they did their version of it, which uh, also became number one, I understand. Indeed it did. All right, moving on. Next track is Travel and Light. This is another number one single written by Sid Tepper and Roy C. Bennett, who wrote a lot of songs for Cliff and also for Elvis. And you could easily hear Elvis singing a song like Travel and Light. Got no bags and baggage to slow me down I'm traveling so fast my feet ain't touching the ground Traveling light, traveling light I could definitely hear the Elvis influence, a little bit of Ricky Nelson too. Yes. And they, they definitely tried to capture the... Sun's record uh, reverb. I'm sure Cliff, when he was recording this, oh, this is so Elvis. This is so Elvis. And uh, and I'm sure he loved doing it. It's a great little song. It is, but where it's placed on Cliff's hit album, I think they're trying to go for a somewhat chronological um, sequence, which is which makes sense, but it does mean that right after Move It, the pace slows considerably here for like three or four songs, and then it starts picking up again. I think if I were to have compiled this record myself, I would have mixed up the timeline a little bit so that we'd have, you know, something fast, something mid-tempo, a ballad, maybe something mid-tempo and then something fast again. But I, I can't really argue with the song selection. They're all great songs. Next, we get to A Voice in the Wilderness, written by Nori Paramore and the elusive Bunny Lewis, as heard and seen in the film Expresso Bongo, and we have another ballad here, another song that, even though this was directly written for the the musical, I could have heard Elvis sing this one too. My heart was so heavy with longing for you My arms were so lonely Lonesome and blue Alone in my sorrow I heard a voice cry A voice in the wilderness A voice from the sky Yeah, me too. I was thinking about that. And it has a very nice guitar work by Hank Marvin in it. Um, the lyrics is sort of... Uh, Harbinger, or the kind of Christian songs that Cliff would do later. I mean, he wasn't a practicing Christian yet, but the song sort of points the direction that Cliff's music would go into later. Yeah, you know, I talked about this with Andrew Hickey. We did an episode on the movie Expresso Bongo, and even though this song, like most everything else in the film, was done from a more cynical perspective, that's not how Cliff delivers it. He delivers it very genuinely. And the expression of voice in the wilderness, that comes from the New Testament. So there's a biblical genesis, pardon the pun, um, 
for this song. And one could make the argument that even though Cliff was not a Christian at this time, God may have been working through Cliff as early as 1959. I agree. I love Cliff's Christian songs, too. And one thing I found interesting about his later, I know we're talking about this album, but his later Christian stuff is that it's very similar to like what George Harrison was doing with his spiritual songs and that the subject of the song doesn't necessarily have to be God. He could be singing to a girl or he could be singing to God. One of my favorite Cliff Christian songs is The Only Way Out. And I love the story that he sort of slipped it past the record company. They wanted him to do a pop album, but he wanted to put out a gospel one. So he sort of mixed it up. And The Only Way Out has a gospel feeling to it, but you could interpret it either it's, it's about God or a woman or somebody, and it works. And I think it's very clever of him to have done it that way. I have to be free from all of the lies that used to be me. The only way out is the only way in, and it's you. We'll move on to another song written by Ian Samwell, and this speaks well, I, I've always said this, this speaks well of Cliff that Ian Samwell was not in his group long, but he was still contributing songs. And then uh, on an episode coming up, we've got Tony Meehan being out of the shadows, but the shadows are recording a Tony Meehan song after he's left the group, which is pretty interesting. But here's Fall in Love With You. I love this song because it has a Buddy Holly feel to it. It's sort of structured after Listen to Me. Listen closely to me. Listen to me. Even the backup singing uh, has a crickets or uh, fireballs feel to it. And I really love Buddy Holly. And I, this song is one of my favorites off this album. Yeah, even though this was a big hit, it reached number two in the uh, British charts. I kind of feel like it's overlooked and a little forgotten, which is a shame. Not so the next song, I think people still remember Please Don't Tease. It was a number one in 1960. And I remember... Hearing this song for the first time on that 25 Years of Cliff Australian cassette that I bought in New York back in the 80s. And this was one of the songs that really jumped out at me because at the time I was a huge Beatles fan and I felt like this had a Beatles-esque feel to it, even though it predates the Beatles. You tell me that you Baby, 
I totally agree with you on the early Beatles sound. This could have been a Beatles song. The guitar solo, you could hear the inspiration must have given to George Harrison. Because you could see you could hear his style in there. Yeah, this was written by Bruce Welch of The Shadows, along with Pete Chester, who is a frequent collaborator. And I don't think enough attention is given to the fact that a lot of these big hit records were done in-house. In other words, The Shadows or members of The Shadows had a hand in writing these songs. Lennon and McCartney rightfully get credit for being as fantastic as they were. It's consistently fantastic, but they certainly weren't the first in Studio 2 to write hit songs. And this is not a million miles away from something that Lennon and McCartney would have written for Billy J. Kramer and the Dakotas. I mean, it's mm-hmm. it's kind of got that early Mersey beat feel to it. Right, it's in that groove. Yeah. So we'll move on to the last track on side one, which is nine times out of ten. I've already said this is one of my favorites of uh, Cliff's very early material. This is a number three hit written by Otis Blackwell and Walden's Hall. But Otis Blackwell, obviously, I I hear that name and I think of Elvis Presley. And I hear the song and I think of Elvis because this is another one that I easily could have heard Elvis perform. I love this one. Oh yeah, I, I definitely can hear Elvis doing this one too, and Eddie Cochran as well. It's a great little rocker. Well, at least Cliff got it. <laughs> yeah, at least Cliff got it. But you have to wonder. I mean, Elvis must have been given this song, right? I mean, it had to have been in a pile of records. And I guess he passed on it. Maybe in 1960, he was more into It's Now or Never and Are You Lonesome Tonight and stretching his voice out. And maybe he thought this was a throwback. I don't know. But yeah, I'm glad I'm glad Cliff recorded it. So uh, side two of the album begins with another original composition by Bruce Welch. And this is the most generic title in the world, but it's still a good song. I love you. Your love means more to me than all the apples hanging on a tree. And like those apples, our love will grow because I, I love you. Your love means more to me than all the fishes swimming in the sea. And like the fishes, my heart begins to swim because I, I love you. It's a cute little song. I like it. And I don't know if you noticed this, but it has a similarity to the Roger Miller song, King of the Road. Two hours of pushing broom buys a eight by twelve four-bit room. I'm a man of means by no means. King of the road. 
third boxcar midnight train. Oh, yeah, I didn't actually, but now that you say it, I can hear it. <laughs> yeah, you can hear sort of the same structure in there. And, say, and I know I Love You came out in 59, and Roger Miller's King of the Road came out in 64. So I'm wondering if, hmm, I wonder if Roger heard this song somewhere. <laughs> All right. Now we have to get to the controversy. There's one song that's controversial on this program every time. I don't. I don't think this is controversial anywhere else, but only on this podcast. Gee, I wonder why. It's theme, <laughs> <laughs> theme for a dream, written by Mort Garson and Earl Schumann, and you can't argue with success. It was a number three hit in 1961. Of course, people do love it, but I personally, you know, you know that song. Uh, Three Little Girls by Paul Evans, which is sort yeah. of like a comedy record. It's seven Little Girls. Seven Little Girls. That's it. Seven Little Girls right. sitting in the back seat. Seven little girls sitting in the back seat, hugging and a kissing with Fred. I said, why don't one of you come up and sit beside me? And this is what the seven girls said. All together now. One, two, three. Keep your mind on your driving, keep your hands on the wheel Keep your snoopy eyes on the road ahead We're having fun, sitting in the back seat. You are my theme for a dream, yes you are A rare and lovely theme You're a theme for a dream The dreams I dream day and night that you're on What's the English term for a twee? <laughs> yes. It's very yes. twee. <laughs> but it's cute. It's cute for what it is. And I could I could see it uh, being a favorite of maybe Cliff's younger fans. So then we get to a song that, if my memory serves correct, this was a song that Cliff's father thought was, you know, one of the better ones that he recorded. I don't know about that, but it's, it's certainly a... You know, it's charming in its own way. You, you might even use the word twee again, but it's a, a girl like you. Angel face, we just met. Well, just how lucky can one boy get? There's a light in your eyes. I know it's love and I know that I could be happy. Tell your ma, tell your pa, and tell your favorite old wishing star. Girl Like You, I could hear a lot of Ricky Nelson in this. It's a nice little song. Cliff does a nice job singing it. Uh, it's the shadows playing on it, right? Yes, they are. And one of the underrated aspects of these twee songs, like A Girl Like You and I Love You, Hank's guitar solos on both of these songs are incredible. do good on it so it's it's a cute song and like i said i hear a lot of ricky nelson and eddie cochran in it all right next up we have a pair of songs from the soundtrack to the young ones so this album comes out in the summer of 63 this greatest hits and 
Summer Holiday had been the most recent hit record, which had Bachelor Boy and Summer Holiday as hits on it. Mm -hmm. And those songs are not represented on here. I guess the thinking was maybe this is a crash course in Cliff. If you loved Summer Holiday and you're new to this music, here's, you know, all of his greatest hits up to that point. I don't know. Anyway, When the Girl in Your Arms is the Girl in Your Heart, Sid Tepper and Roy C. Bennett again. And I have one word, and that's Elvis. When the girl in your arms is the girl in your heart, then you've got everything. When you're holding the dream, you've been dreaming. Yeah, it definitely sounds like an Elvis song, and uh, I liken it very much to Love Me Tender. It has that kind of feel to it. I could hear and see Elvis doing this in one of his movies, or it's just an album track or B-side, but it's a really nice song. And when it comes to the next song, also written by Sid Tepper and Roy C. Bennett, um, I think as Americans, we can both relate that we knew the young ones, the song first as the theme song to the TV show, The Young Ones. Once in every lifetime. When I found out that it was an actual song, I was really alarmed, you know. <laughs> I thought, what? <laughs> this is this is not just the theme to uh, the Young Ones TV show? that Rick Mayall didn't come up with this? So what do you think of the song, The Young Ones? I think it's a great movie theme. I like the use of the strings. It's very nice. It has that Buddy Holly touch. And Buddy Holly, if you remember, before his tragic death, was experimenting with strings in his records. You could hear a bit of Buddy in this song. The sky is blue. There's not a cloud to spoil the view, but it's raining. Raining in my heart. The young ones, uh, like I said, I was aware of the, the TV show with the with the comedy cast. And when I heard about the movie and the song the Young Ones, I said, I wonder if there's a connection. And then I saw the bit with Cliff. I said, Oh, okay, I get it now. <laughs> I get right. it now. I'm a I'm a big fan of mo- movie musicals. And I've done I'm an actor also who's done uh theatrical musicals on stage. So I really like the movie. It's a wonderful British musical. I mean, the cast is great, and I love Robert Morley. He's uh, deliciously devious in the movie, <laughs> you know, as as Cliff's uh, father. Until the end, I won't give, I won't be a spoiler what happens at the end. But uh, 
it's a delightful movie, and I love that. And Summer Holiday, I can see why they're both considered Cliff's best movies. So we'll move on to a double-sided hit. Both songs became big, big hits for Cliff in the Shadows, and the first one is a very moody song, another one that jumped out at me when I first heard uh, the Cliff in the 60s compilation album. It's I'm Looking Out the Window. I'm looking out the window I'm waiting at the door To see if you'll be coming by The way you did before The way you did before Yeah, I agree with you. It's a very moody song. It's a song I can hear Elvis doing. Cliff really puts a bit of emotion into it, and he does a great job. You know, there's a clip of Cliff performing this on one of his TV shows not long after the record came out, and it's really fascinating to see. In fact, a few years ago, a whole bunch of Cliff shows, usually done for ATV, were on YouTube in their entirety. And this is, you know, 1960, 1961. For historical purposes, they were so valuable to see the complete show intact. Now they've all been removed, I'm assuming, for copyright purposes. And it's history's loss because they were just wonderful to watch from start to finish. Anyway, we'll wrap up with the last song on Cliff's hit album, Do You Want to Dance? Obviously, this was a hit for Bobby Freeman in uh, the U.S., big, big song. But Cliff's version, also big. Do You Want to Dance was a number 10 hit. It was competing, really, with I'm Looking Out the Window. But what do you think of, and this is, actually, they performed this on the Ed Sullivan Show as well. What do you think of Do You Want to Dance? I think it's great. I think it's a good version. And when you consider all the different versions that are out there, you have the Beach Boys. Later on, you had John Lennon and even later the Ramones. But Cliff's version is really good and with the shadows. And I, I saw the clip of the Ed Sullivan appearance. Says, oh, Cliff was on that too. There you go. So I think it's a fun rendition. I can see why it was such a big hit for him in, uh, in England and around the world. It's a good song to end the album on. It, it leaves you uh, dancing, basically. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's a good album. It's very well put together. It's a good snapshot of the type of entertainer that uh, Cliff was and a good view of him as a rock and roll artist. Certainly in those early days. So, Fred, I want to thank you so much for coming on the uh, the. Weren't we going to also discuss the two singles, It's All in the Game and Your Eyes Are Telling You? Oh, my God. (laughs) You're you're totally right. So (laughs) let's talk about... Let's talk about It's All in the Game. Now, this song is interesting uh, for a number of reasons. One, Tommy uh, Edwards recorded this song twice. So 
the original version of the song was a very lush ballad. has to fall but it's all in the game all in the wonderful game that we know as love that was the 1951 version then he recorded it again in 1958 and that was more of an R&B version this is the one that most people are familiar with many a tear has to fall but it's all in the game all in the wonderful game that we know as love Cliff's version was recorded on December 28, 1962, backed by the Nori Paramore Orchestra and the Mike Sam Singers. This version, I feel, splits the difference between the 51 Tommy Edwards and the 58 Tommy Edwards. Many a tear has to fall And when this was released on Epic Records here in the U.S., Cliff got some traction on radio. In fact, there's even a clip of American Bandstand, and Dick Clark announces the song and talks about Cliff Richard, and you see the kids slow dancing to It's All in the Game. So kind of a success here in uh, the United States. I think it's a very nice cover. And uh, the interesting thing you mentioned about it being bubbling under billboard charts, it was a 28 was that was the same week that the Beatles' I Want to Hold Your Hand hit number one on the same charts. And uh, an interesting fact is that uh, the song was co-written by Charles G. Dawes, who was vice president under Calvin Coolidge. So um, you actually have a song that was written by a former vice president of the United States. That's great. That's great. So we flip this record over. And by the way, I should point out, and, and one of these days, maybe maybe I'll do this, but... We almost should have a separate episode at some time looking at Cliff's American LPs because there is an It's All in the Game album that was cobbled together from various different EPs and different albums and the single, and they sort of put a, uh, like Cliff Sings Romantic Ballads album together. I guess they were kind of thinking of pushing him as a ballad singer, like a romantic ballad singer. But the flip, it's, it's a different story. Here we've got an original written by Hank Marvin, Your Eyes Tell on You. I'll be honest, I think this is a good enough song to have been a single on its own. Your eyes tell on you Your eyes tell on you Just lately it seems You're acting strange to me But now it's so plain so very plain to see I thought and I thought 
I like it. It's very catchy. It's very, um, it has a Beatle feel to it. I could hear Paul McCartney singing this. The DJs back then should have flipped the single because who knows, it might have competed against the Beatles if they caught on. Maybe, maybe. Okay, take two. Now we're, we're really going to say goodbye this time. So Fred, where can people go to get your book, A Little Bit Me, A Little Bit You, The Monkeys from a Fan's Perspective? Well, uh, they could order the book through Amazon both books. They just look me up. uh, They can look up Monkeys, Fred Belez, and they'll find both my books available on Amazon.com as both print and Kindle editions, print and Kindle. And uh, also, if you want to get a signed copy of my books, you go on my uh, website, Freddie Pop, that's all one word, freddiepop.wordpress.com to get signed editions of my book. Also, my... uh, Monkeys theme Christmas CD, where me and uh, my producer, uh, John Roginski, put together a bunch of Christmas songs done the style of the monkeys, which I think people will like. So again, you go on freddypop.wordpress.com to get the signed copies or on Amazon to get both the print and Kindle editions of the book. Once again, my thanks to Fred Velez for appearing on the show this month. And if you'd like to get in touch with the podcast, you can do so by emailing me. It's we say yeah podcast at gmail.com. You could also join us over on Facebook. Look for We Say Yeah on Facebook and on Twitter. It's We Say Yeah Pod. By the way, next month, we're going to look at a pair of EPs by The Shadows. Foot Tapping with The Shadows and Los Shadows. That'll be next month on the program. Until then, I retreat into the shadows, only to reemerge in 31 days. Take care. We say yeah. We say yeah. We say yeah.